I wasn't sure what to preach on, um, but what nailed it for me last night was when I heard another story of another pastor leaving his wife for a woman in the congregation, and I thought, that's it, that nailed it. Um, so we're doing Proverbs 7, how not to commit adultery. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your kinsmen. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a man who lacked judgment, who was going down the street near her corner, walking along the in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with brazen face she said, I have fellowship offerings at home. Today I fulfilled my vows. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and found you. I have covered my bed with coloured linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierced his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. I was reminded as that reading was on about uh, the, what, perhaps one of, the, one of the best student ministers I've ever had. Uh, went on to be a church planter and um, was doing an excellent job. And uh, a few years into that church plant, his wife had a, an adulterous relationship and the whole thing busted open. They then went on to plant another church with the remnant of the previous congregation and then that's come to nothing. And um, Anyway, it's, it's stories like that that makes me want to preach on this passage to you guys who I'm so privileged to be a part of because uh, uh, I love church planting. When I was around 20 years ago, we were starting to do it. Like I didn't have a clue. I didn't know Arthur from Martha, basically. Actually, I don't think I know that much more now, but uh, I really didn't know that much then. And, uh, but I just knew, love people, preach the gospel and see what happens. And uh, God and his kindness. If you hang around long enough, things usually happen uh, with the grace of God. Uh, what I had about this preparing this sermon originally was that it was so easy to find sermon illustrations. It's too easy. You know, some people never learn. They say history repeats itself, has to, because no one ever listens. 
And the nature of the fool in proverb is someone who never seems to listen, keeps repeating the same mistakes, fails to take counsel, clearly fails to fear the Lord, refuses to learn from their own mistake, refuses to learn from the mistakes of others. And the book of Proverbs, and we've just done a series uh, recently, uh, and we've titled it Life Without uh, Life, No Regrets, uh, that in the end we want to get to the end of our life with a clear conscience. Uh, some years ago I went to a conference at Katoomba and I met a man, a Christian man, who had seriously backslidden on two occasions. This was his second. He was just coming back. And um, I don't know when evangelicals really rebel, like we go the whole way, because I think we realise there's no purpose for having a, a moral framework once Jesus is out of the picture. Anyway, he had uh, immersed himself in kind of hardcore porn, serial prostitution. It was as bad as bad could get. He turned away from the living God and nosedived into every kind of filth. And then through the journey, he just happened to be working somewhere where he really liked a woman. She, she wasn't a believer, but she was a really kind of wholesome kind of a woman. And uh, his past had kind of caught up with him because he wasn't sure whether he was carrying uh, hepatitis or HIV. And, um, and he started coming back to church, and it was the perfect series for him. It was uh, in Romans, on assurance, and he really needed to know that you know, true repentance means true forgiveness. And it looked really good, but as it turned out, within about mm, two months, it was clear that it wasn't God he wanted, but a clean bill of health. Because the moment he got that, the moment he got that, he pursued a relationship he shouldn't have pursued with that woman who wasn't a Christian, and as it turned out, uh, uh, destroyed that relationship like every other. And I thought of Proverbs 26.11, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. You don't, in Proverbs, you don't have to wait for the day of judgment to reap what you sow. This is a moral ordered universe. And like the laws of gravity, you break them, you're going to, you don't have to wait for the day of judgment to, uh, to, to be bitten by it. In the end, though, the, uh, the fool does not love wisdom and won't allow himself to be disciplined by the word of God. So think with me this morning about the whole notion of who is the love of your life? Because I hope you hear her calling to everyone, male or female, her name is Wisdom. And she's wooing you to herself. Uh, uh, in, now, I've got to say, we know post-Jesus, um, wisdom is incarnate and kind of becomes a he and kind of loses the feminine image. But bear with me. Um, the context here is set between a father's instruction to a son, which, by the way, kind of got me thinking of all the things I taught my son. Telling him the journey of adultery is probably not one of them. I, you know, we kind of don't help them work through. So can I just say... Um, that's the context in which this is taught to us, a father's instruction to his son and teaching them about how adulteries take place is what you do. So friends, let's go on this journey of, uh, of, uh, of, of an adultery really and learn from it. And what you discover is, is that what we all know, adultery usually doesn't happen as a result of one dumb decision. It's usually a thousand little ones. Uh, most of them innocuous. Uh, so I've got them in this talk in stages. Stage one, it all begins with your attitude to the Word of God. Uh, prevention is better than cure. Let me just read from the NIV, uh, Proverbs 7, 1 to 5. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your kinsman. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. Keep God's word close to you is what it's saying, isn't it? Essentially, befriend wisdom. Make it the love, make her the love of your life. 
um, we would say, let Jesus rule in every corner of your life. Allow him to rule. Let the grace of God enable you to say no to ungodliness. See, right now you're, you're on a trajectory that's either heading for adultery or away from it. Um, uh, and obviously reading your Bible is a very good thing to do and being part of a community that has that. But kind of at a much more deeper level, allowing yourself to face yourself with questions like, are you prepared to admit that you're vulnerable to adultery, for example? Like, is that clear in your head? <coughs> that it's only a stone's throw away, and if you're like me, I can't throw stones very far. That I permanently live in a state of fear about this issue, because I've seen better people than me go down and lose it. You know, one psychologist said half of the men he sees who've committed adultery are from very good marriages. Gordon McDonald is a classic story of a, of a brother who blew it. Uh, in, in, if you may or may not know his story now, but he used to be in charge of uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I think on a radio he was asked this question. Um, Gordon, um, he, was asked, uh, he was asked about how Satan might tempt him. And he answered, and I quote, all sorts of ways, I suppose, but I know there's one way he wouldn't get me. What's that? He'd never get me in the area of my personal relationships. That's one place where I have no doubt that I am as strong as you can get. And I think it's within two years he found himself in bed with somebody else other than his wife. And he reflected on that and uh, used the words of another when he said, an unguarded strength is actually a double weakness. And that is the case. So do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Part of letting God's word being, uh, part of allowing wisdom to be close to you in God's word is to actually feel the warnings. To actually think, this is not about the person next to me or the person back at church. You know, this is actually about me, about my attitude. So as I read this chapter, uh, I'm actually to keep it close to my heart. I'm, I, I'm allowed, it's supposed to scare the daylights out of me. So are you listening? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's stage one. Stage two. Before adultery happens in the body, you know it happens in the mind and the heart. Before you're in her bed, she's in your head, so to speak. Proverbs 6.25, a previous chapter, because 5 to 7 runs this theme out in different ways. Uh, Solomon writes, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty and let her captivate you with her eyes. And that's you can see what Jesus was saying. It wasn't profoundly new, was it, in the Sermon of the Mount? The equation, the relationship between the lust of the heart and the lust of, and the adultery of the body, that there's a tight relationship, and there's a very tight relationship in terms of cause and effect. What you think results in usually what you do. The thought is soon followed by the walk. Um, and again, so I, I stop for a moment, and I, and I and I get you to think for a moment. Who is it you find yourself thinking about when you make love to your spouse? Now, images pop into minds, but I'm talking about the ones you linger with and stay with. So your body is with your spouse, but your mind and heart is with another. You'll reap what you'll sow if you let that go unchecked. In chapter 7, uh, Solomon appears to be observing an adultery in progress. Uh, now remember, he ought to know because his mum and dad got together as a result of an adultery. Story of Bathsheba and David. 
And step three, thinking then leads to action. Verse seven. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men a, uh, a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. So stage three, thinking turns to behaviour. Your feet will end up taking you where your mind has been every time. Here's a young, foolish man. He may be single, he may be married. He's certainly in the prime of his life, and every step he takes is takes him one step closer to where his mind has been, a woman he's been lusting after. Wisdom will say, flee sexual immorality. But uh, foolishness will say, I wonder how close I can get. Just a little look, a little, ling uh, a little ponder, a little reflection. And you know that, you know, I meet in a, a group with other men uh, on a regular basis and uh, we've trained ourselves to ask this question, is there anyone you're attracted to at the moment? The very act, it's so scary to come out and say a name, but the very act of naming it kind of guts it of its power. Um, and you can go for quite a long time and, and there's nothing there that you know one in particular you're attracted to and then all of a sudden, someone who you just happen to enjoy the conversation with and so you just gravitate at morning tea to and uh, you kind of suggest let's catch up with and and again a lot of it's fine but all of a sudden you think mm, this just doesn't seem right i think of a woman who was uh, who is married to a minister uh, minister friend of mine she uh, was a school teacher and um, she decided she'd stay back and work uh, rather than bring her work home with her and nine times out of ten I'm sure that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Only problem was the, there was a guy, another school teacher in the staff room that she kind of enjoyed talking to and uh, uh, in the early days she told herself well he's not a Christian and he, he likes talking about Jesus so you could do it with a clear conscience and, um, and again it didn't start with this intent she, and as she told me the story and uh, as it turned out the husband, the, this man was kind of everything her own husband wasn't. He listened, he cared, he was tender, and he was married, and so was she, to different people. And as the sun set, fell, as the sun fell, she was in that staff room embracing that man. It never got to sexual intercourse, but it didn't need to, did it? It's left a permanent scar in that marriage as they embraced on several occasions. Um, that's why they're called deeds of darkness, aren't they? Because you kind of wait till the sunset. You don't want to do it in public for people to see. Uh, I, I remember John, John White, you know who wrote The Fight? You're probably too young. Al would know. Uh, remember The Fight? Colin definitely will know. <laughs> it had its moment. It was a classic discipleship book with a couple of, you know, faulty chapters. But, you know, it was, a good, it was a good book. Anyway, John White wrote another book on the prayers of biblical heroes. And uh, he did Psalm 51. And it's, it's funny how I can still remember reading it. He just uh, talked about how King David, the, the events leading up to that adultery in 2 Samuel 11 began like this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. And John happened to make the question, uh, raise the question that's kind of stayed with me. Am I where I'm supposed to be right now? That's the question you've got to keep asking. Am I where I'm supposed to be right now? So you can say yes, now, tick. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Carry that question with you. Because uh, there are times when I thought, mm, I'm not sure I ought to be here. This is unhelpful. This is unhelpful. Am I where I'm supposed to be? 
this man found himself in a place where he should not be. Stage four, we get the encounter. Uh, it begins with a look. Look at verse 10. Then out came a woman to meet him dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. So uh, dressed like a prostitute, I guess it'll get translated culturally, but you know, for us it's, I guess, the clothes, you know, the short skirt, the transparent clothing, uh, the cleavage, you know, just enough to make you want more. Um, manner inviting, there's no risk of rejection here. Her body language is communicating, it's flirtation, isn't it? it's just saying, I want you. He came to her, now she comes to him. They're both culpable in different ways. And then from the look to the touch, verse 11. She is loud and defiant, her feet never stay at home, now in the street, now in the squares. At every corner she lurks, she took hold of him and kissed him. Unlike maybe the wife at home who might have said, not tonight, dear, I've got a headache. She's not throwing that one at him. Uh, she's going to. She's not going to keep her distance because she's feeling a bit wounded because of the conversation they had the night before. She wants him. She wants him to know that she wants him. Um, there's no, you know, if there's any doubt, she plants one big mother of a kiss in public. Kind of reminds you of how pornography works, doesn't it? I mean, there's this sort of the the titillating nature of it, but really behind it, the images are often exciting but not threatening. Um, there is no uh, wife who's tired with three kids under four. There's just yes, yes, yes with this image. There's no threat. And then the words. The words really are the most powerful, seductive element to the whole story, really. Strangely, there are religious words here. God may be far away, but religion's lurking. You notice that in verse 14? As part of her... Um, style of approach to him, a tempt, tempt, tempting nature. She says, I have fellowship offerings at home. Today I fulfilled my vows. And, and it's kind of hard to work out exactly how that's a sexy thing. <laughs> it could be maybe to soothe his guilt or hers. With fellowship offerings, the worshipper often got to enjoy to take home and enjoy the, 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 that which was offered. And so it may be, you know, I've got food for you because as everyone knows, a way to a man's heart. <laughs> and so it could be, you know, she's kind of wooing him sexually and, um, and uh, through, the, through the stomach as well. It may be that. Verse 15, so I came out to meet you, I looked for you and have found you. See, oh, no rejection. You're the one that I want. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> Oh, the need to be wanted is so powerful. And, you know, in the cut and thrust of church planting, when it's uh, really, you know, you've you got men wanting to make their claim for Jesus and a couple of ego other issues, uh, and you tend to overwork and the neglect starts to happen, um, and all of a sudden uh, there's someone there in your life who is communicating interest, I guess I do want to say to you ladies, you know, whether you're 25 or 55, really, there's nothing more intoxicating than a man who will listen to your need and whisper words that perhaps your dad never said and, and, and your husband has stopped saying, like, you're gorgeous, or I love you. She flirts with her body, but, oh, her words, they're, they're much more enticing. And she paints pictures here, you notice, that promise pleasure. In verse 16, she says, 
I've covered my, ble- my bed with coloured linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and alloys and cinnamon. It's kind of, if you're in bed, kind of, I think it's a bit of a mess, really. But anyway, especially cinnamon. It's like toast in bed. I, I don't know. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> you know, the crumbs are just ruins everything. Now, Song of Songs uses these kind of spices as kind of metaphors for sexual organs. Um, but maybe just a modern version for us would be sort of satin sheets, champagne, strawberry and cream. And it kind of would be a beautiful picture if there were a couple who were married going away for a weekend to you know, re- re-strengthen their bonds, you know. But no, that's not what's going on here. In verse 18, the classic of all lies. Come, she says, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. You think? Nothing's changed. Sexual immorality parading as love yet again. It's as old as the hills. You don't have to worry about relevancy when you're in Proverbs because the world of three millennium ago is exactly the world we live in. Um, sexual immorality parading itself as love. That's why I love that uh, Steve Turner poem. I know that Steve, Steve Turner poem. Tonight we will fake love. I thought I might read it to you. Because that's all it is, isn't it? Tonight we will fake love together. You, my love, possess all the essential qualities as listed by Playboy. You will last me for as long as two weeks or until such a time as your face and figure go out of fashion. I will hold you close to my Hollywood standard body. Uh, The smell of which has been approved by my ten best friends and a representative of Lifeboy. I will prop my paperback Karma Sutra on the dressing table and like programmed souls we will perform and like human beings, we will grow tired of our artificially sweetened, diluted, and ready-to-drink love affairs. Tonight, we will fake love. Tonight, we will be both quick and silent, our time limited, measured out in distances between fingers and push buttons. Tonight, we will fake love. And then the clincher with her words. She's offering him safe sex. Verse 19. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. Like a lamb to the slaughter. You know, she's offering him safe sex. There's going to be no consequences. And uh, that's such an attractive thing. To actually get pleasure without pain. To to sow without having to reap. To break that connexus. Uh, Her husband is away for a long time, and the money indicates he'll be a long time. It's just between you and me. That's what Potiphar's wife tried to do to Joseph. She tried to make it just between her and him. And what does Joseph do? He redefines the temptation. He brings her her husband and his God into the story. It's never just you and me. That's always the lie about adulteries and sexual immorality. The promise is you can get away with it and... And, uh, and, that is, and that is the lie. And there's always a price to be paid for adultery, and usually more than one. Not the least, there's the public shame of it all once it's out. Because um, this man is completely unaware that he's being watched through the lattice window. Um, in verse, chapter 5, verse 14, just a couple of chapters earlier, a man reaping what he's sown in light of the adulteress. He says, I have come to the brink of utter ruin. Chapter 5, verse 14. I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Everyone knows. I think of a man who takes a former minister, who takes uh, his child to the preschool, attached to the church he used to be a minister at, 
is no longer allowed to because he had an affair with someone on staff in that church many years ago. And uh, he still takes his child there because of the connections with that preschool, but his head is bowed down and the shame is surrounding him. And then the deadly jealousy, um, chapter 6, verse 34. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. I remember being at a place when the husband found out this is a guy who sort of you look at him and you, you run. He's a scary man. But it was a, he was a Christian man with a soft heart, just looked mean. And... Um, and uh, to be there when the cops were called because the wife was afraid because the husband had just found out. Now, he restrained himself. The only punch he threw was in the wall. And, uh, but uh, it could have gone so differently. You know, the, the line between picking up a gun and using it against the wife who's betrayed you was so tempting for him. And as he said, if he wasn't a Christian, it probably would have happened. They're not called crimes of passion for no reason. There's more than a few people in jail, male and female, at Long Bay because uh, the absolute pain of the, uh, being a victim to adultery um, is so great that death is the only way to deal with it. Wrongly, but that's how it is. And then there's a pain for everyone, isn't it? Obviously for the, for the, for the spouses, the victims, the children, um, the divorces that follow, the pain of the kids who are having to suffer, suffer it all. Uh, after I preached this some time ago, there was a lady in our church who... Her husband had committed adultery with his best friend, who was also at church. It just just so profoundly damaging. It was about five years ago. And she was at a point five years later to tell about what it was like for her. Now, during the course of the adultery, which she was unaware of, and her husband has since gone to marry off that woman, and um, they've, got a, they've now got a child and live in Queensland. But, but this, uh, this particular woman, this victim, of the of the adultery um, in the middle of it all finally discovers after 10 years she's actually had a child she's conceived and we're all rejoicing wondering why he wasn't um, and then then she lost the child so it's kind of like an adultery encircling the grief of a child that's been so longed for and then dies and kind of like David and Bathsheba let me read to you just when I asked her how did you feel and it's just worth hearing her pain when I was told by my ex-husband, it was like standing on a chasm and looking down into this black sinkhole with no end. The word despair wouldn't even begin to summarise it all. It felt overwhelmingly blacker than black. I couldn't even fathom the possibility of there being a light at the end of the tunnel, to the point that six months later I could have easily driven over a bridge. In such a short space of time, my world totally changed. There were so many losses to grieve. Uh, over, over Benjamin, her son, who had, was born and died, uh, of not being a mother, my marriage, my friendship, my homes, that it was impossible to grieve one without being impacted by the other. I mourned the loss of broken promises and vows. There was no more us in the future. When I was at home, I grieved alone. My pain and loss was my own. No spouse to be there as we'd promised to one another those many years ago. I experienced and felt total abandonment and rejection, not only by his actions but by his words. My relationship with his family ceased, which was also a great loss for me. Family and friends were hurt through their actions and behaviour, and to this day I still carry that pain. The realisation of how deceitful they had been and the lies that were told to hide their actions. I felt dirty and violated in what was once my home, 
Church relationships and dynamics changed. My self-esteem, my self-worth as a woman, a wife, a friend had been totally destroyed even though he was the one that had, that had betrayed and broken our relationship. It's overwhelming, isn't it, just to hear that? And then, of course, there's a guilt before God, really, because you can actually go to your grave and no one finds out. Plenty do. And Proverbs 5, verse 21, reminds us that it's on God's radar from beginning to end. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. <coughs> and there is a guilt that gnaws you, no matter how much you suppress it. Uh, so often adultery, too, becomes a stepping stone to losing your faith. That's why her house in Proverbs 7.27, her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. You see, the worst thing that can happen to you is not adultery. It's failing to repent. Because as we know, adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And always think the adultery is not the worst thing that can happen. But it's so devastating. Um, I got to speak to her husband, by the way, three years after when he finally did repent. And I asked him, what was it like for you? What's it like for you knowing what you've done? Because he does have the Spirit of God in him. And he did eventually repent and write, write the letter he needed to write and finally confront her, be confronted by her. And that was very healing for her. And I asked him, and I, I knew this guy. I led this guy in a park. He was a park drunk. He's the only guy I ever saw someone become a Christian sharing the gospel once. He'd never heard it before, accepted it, threw his six cans of beer in the, and then sort of lived a, a life of grace. It was just so devastating for me and, and the church, but nothing compared to what she had to experience. But I said to him, what, what, just help me, like, what's it like when you're actually, you've done it but you haven't repented? And he said, Ray, it's like this. He was a truckie. I'd be driving. And he said, out of the blue, when I'd least expect it, the events that took place would sort of fall, like in sequence, one after another. Like from the, from the moment that other woman said, have you ever thought, right through to the adultery, the lies. He said one after another, just until finally I just couldn't cope. I could barely breathe. I'd have to pull over to the side of the road because he'd literally almost suffocate under the weight of the gill and then kind of suppress it so he can just live life. God's way is the best way. That's what wisdom is saying. God's way is the best way. And wisdom really is calling for us to find our pleasure in the one we have vowed to. Really, that's the answer here. You know, God delights when we delight in the body of the spouse that we said, for as long as we both shall live. Um, and can I just encourage you, you know, the healthy sex life under the pressure when you're really tired is important to keep working at it. Don't forget 1 Corinthians 7, friends, where... Uh, the obligation to your partner sexually is defined in terms of a debt which doesn't mean this is a trump card for the guy to get sex whenever he wants it but I do want to say you know sometimes sometimes when plan A doesn't work out for you plan B which I call the ministry of the hand you know what I'm talking about when a wife really is just too, too tight and can't give up herself for whatever reason sometimes plan B is better than no plan at all that sex, keeping the sex alive in the relationship, I know it's a symptom of the quality of the relationship, but I need to say it is absolutely critical. My wife will say it took her 
quite a few years before she understood me sexually. And when the penny dropped, it really was quite different. And it, it was really much easier for me. And I don't want to lay blame about if this happens because of that. I simply want to say, work at your sexual life. And sometimes the, the ministry of the hand to help the orgasm to take place is actually a very helpful plan B. I'm not saying it's always plan A. Um, just got to live in reality. Okay, I'll get back to the passage and then wind it up. What's he talking ministry of the hand? What I, and, and that's what Proverbs 5.18 says. Look, have a look at Proverbs 5.18. Uh, because I'm so glad this is in the Bible. Like, you think, should this be in the Bible? Yes, it is in the Bible. 5.18. Now, I've got excerpts from it, so I haven't got the full text. So where, in, where Solomon says, May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. And then he says, May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? Mastectomy or no mastectomy? You delight in the body of the spouse that you've been given. I say that because I remember after preaching on this many years ago, a woman from the 8 o'clock congregation who'd had the mastectomy said, you know what I love about my husband? He loved me no less, even physically even when the breasts were removed because of the cancer. And the call, for, the, call for, the call of wisdom, the call of our Lord Jesus is love the one that you vowed. And uh, I think of it, there's a guy in our church who um, uh, used to be a printer. You always got to pray for tradies because every trade shop you work in, you know, there's a stack of Playboys in the toilet and a stack of uh, centerfolds on the wall and they just that's the environment they work in all the time but this printer he um, he had the sort of nudes everywhere and he just didn't know how to handle it so he came up with the idea of getting his children's drawings and putting them on the wall because he wanted to relationalize you know because all of this is just it's so non-relational so he said now I'm a man with a wife with children and so the kids drawings went up you know surrounded by playboy and hustler and uh, and I said to him I said Steve have you thought about whacking this verse up you know, and that's exactly what he did. And so on that wall, in big print, next to you know, the, the classic centerfolds were words like, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breasts satisfy you, as opposed to all these others. Uh, may you ever be captivated by her love. You see, that's wisdom. Truth in the face of lies. Wisdom in the face of adultery. Keep working out of friends, keep being realistic you're only a stone's throw away. Keep working at your relationship. Keep giving of yourself physically. And uh, if plan A doesn't work, go for plan B. Um, I'm not asking the guys to, if it's the guys to, to demand, uh, you know, and have it on tap. But I am saying, keep nurturing your sexual life. It is the expectation of scripture that you keep serving each other physically. And, um, and do not be naive because you're only one stone's throw away from committing adultery. And the devastating, the devastate in your role, you have no idea the damage that's done. To the name of Jesus, to all the people who come to Christ through you, um, and to the community who hears about the minister in that church down the road who slept with another woman. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a very heavy word, Lord, and yet we want to say thank you that your Bible is so blunt and so real about the reality of the temptations that every one of us face.
we confess, Lord, we are but a stone's throw away from committing adultery. And Lord, we recognize, Father, that uh, it begins with the heart, it begins with our attitude to the word, it begins with a realistic assessment of our vulnerability. Father, we pray right now if, we, if we're aware of others who are attractive to us, that we'd actually stand guard over the temptation to seek them out. Father, we pray that we would learn to be satisfied with the one we vowed, our husband, our wife. And uh, Father, we do pray that, uh, that we'll be able to reach the end of our life with a clear conscience, being able to say that the only person in the, in the course of my marriage that we have engaged in sexual relationship with is my spouse. And we pray this, Lord, for your glory, for the good of our spouses, for the good of our families, for the good of our church, and for the good of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.